0: Dear listener and fellow story lover, I admit that I did hesitate a little before finally deciding to record this week's story, as some of the self-degrading language is a little too extreme for my liking. Having said that, the story has its strengths, its message is timeless, and one in which some listeners may even recognise themselves to a certain degree. I hope you enjoy this week's Stories from Before. The Blossoming Bough, a story of a girl who was ashamed of her mother, written by Helen Ormsby, read by Selina Cadell, by permission of the Lutterworth Press, music by Stacy Weir. I was 15. We lived in a remote part of Ireland, and I was eager enough to go as boarder to a high school at Brighton, as Mother wished me to do. Cousin Matilda, a cousin of Mother's, came often for days at a time that summer, and we stitched and stitched. By the end of September, I was ready to leave. Of course, when I got to school, I found that the dresses we had laboured over were not stylish, and I had some perfectly wretched days and wished I were dead. But youth adapts itself readily, and it was not long before I took on some of the style and ways of my new companions and delighted in the school, and thought there never were and never could be again such altogether delightful people as my teachers and schoolmates. When I went home for the Christmas holidays, Mother thought me greatly changed and said at once, greatly improved. Cousin Matilda looked at me sharply. Well, I'm not so sure yet that it is improved, but I hope so. My brother Richard teased me unmercifully at supper that first night. He vowed he could see himself and part his hair in front of my polished manners, Then, in mincing tones he would ask me to slide the bread along. Richard often teased me this way, but whereas I used to think it was a kind of flattery to have Richard tease me, now every word of his pretended roughness grated on me, and I found myself saying, oh Richard, don't, please, and that did not mean, don't tease me, it meant, don't be so commonplace. The holidays slipped away pleasantly enough, however, and though Cousin Matilda took a good many sharp looks at me that Christmas, as though trying to get at my meanings, everybody, approved of me. By the end of two years, a tremendous change had been wrought in me, and with it a change in my attitude towards my people. I loved Mother and Richard dearly, and yet I would not have admitted it then, of course, but I am frank to admit it now. I was ashamed of them. I was ashamed, I mean, of Richard's crude, countrified ways, and Mother wore clothes without a particle of style, in such an old-fashioned way, and her hair lay so smooth above her forehead, like an old portrait, and her hands were rough and red. I did not think too definitely about these things, but they were forming and moulding my nature nevertheless. I hardly knew myself how fearfully much the new life had come to mean to me until there was a question that second summer, on account of finances, whether I could go back to school for my third and finishing year. There could scarcely have been to me at that time a more profound tragedy than to miss that third year. Things were patched up, however. Mother received one or two business letters that she did not show me, and announced quietly one day that everything had come out nicely, whatever exactly that vague statement might mean, and there was no reason in the world why I should not return to school. And oh, what a blessing it was, for in that third year came to me my greatest happiness. By Christmas of that year, I was engaged to Hartley Crenton, At the beginning of the school year, Adelaide, his sister and my dear chum, died. It was that chiefly which brought us together. In the Christmas holidays, I went to stay with his mother. The visit had been a promise to Adelaide, and Mrs Crenton wanted me to keep that promise, just as though Adelaide were alive. We were all three thrown constantly together, and our mutual love for Adelaide was an intimate bond. Hartley begged me to marry him in June. He and his mother wrote to my mother, and of course I did too. I told mother that I would rather come home at Easter to stay with her until June. For, owing to a temporary, very grave responsibility in his work, Hartley could not get leave in June to come home to marry me. So his mother asked me to come to Brighton in that month and be married quietly there from their home. She would beg mother and Richard to come and pay her a visit at that time. Hartley and I could then settle down near her. Of course, Mother and Richard could not come. I knew that. Richard was now working at night on the local paper, and Mother would never leave him. Besides, oh, it was best so, far best so, for, you see, though I had spoken often of Mother and Richard, neither Mrs Crenton nor Hartley realised at all how different my people were from theirs, nor had I cared to have them do so. Once, after our engagement, I tried to explain a little about Richard. "'I'll warrant I know just what sort of a fellow Richard is,' Hartley interrupted. "'He's a genius. I have a cousin like that. He's an engineer and a genius, and he never knows whether he has on a tie or not. He is so absorbed in his work.' "'Well, I let it go at that. I would explain by and by just how splendid Mother and Richard were, yet how different. I did not mean to deceive Hartley.' I only meant to wait and explain more fully some day. In three weeks exactly, Hartley and I were to be married. One day there came a letter saying that an unexpected and very important turn in affairs made it necessary for him to cross to Ireland on some business for his company. He would be able to run over to our village for exactly three hours on Thursday evening, from six until nine. He would come direct to the house. I read it rapidly. The anxiety must have shown in my face, for Mother, watching me while I read, said, What is the matter, dear? Is Hartley ill? I read it through again rapidly, then I remembered that she had spoken. Oh, no, I said, trying to look glad. No, indeed, he's coming. I thought for a mad moment of telegraphing Hartley not to come, but that was impossible, for he was already on the way. I went through phase after phase, and was no doubt an animate piece of psychology the whole of that day, glad and sorry, panicky and in a dull despair, ashamed of myself but bitter too against circumstance. That night I could not sleep. I got up and sat at the window. The orchard was so exquisite, in full bloom with the moonlight streaming over it. Apple blossoms seemed to me Hartley's flower and mine. They were his favourite flower, and he used to tell me fondly that I reminded him of them. You are pink and white and sweet, he would say, and as gracious as a blossoming bough. But I could not think of any of the comforting and beautiful things now. I was picturing instead the four of us at supper the next night, when Hartley would be there. I was thinking of Hartley's mother, with her polished conventional ways of the world, her clothes in the latest fashion, her beautifully kept hands, and then my own mother. Mother who was sure to be awkward and over-eager or over-shy. It did not matter so much about Richard, though Richard was sure to be irritating. Richard might pass for a genius with his shock of heavy hair and his intense face, but nothing could have made a genius of mother. It was written large all over her that she was good but had never had advantages, that she was a woman who did not know the world at all, a woman who had worked and served and had grown old. Then a kind of resentment grew up in me, a resentment towards Hartley's people, perhaps for being so different from my own. If he did not like my people, very well, let him not like them. He was free to withdraw if he wanted to, and if his love was of that kind. So, with this poor and bitter loyalty to my own, but not without a few hot tears, I fell asleep. When I wakened, it was nearly noon. I listened. There was not a sound. I slipped into my kimono and went downstairs. No one was there. I went into the dining room. The table had been cleared, all save my place. Mother had put some breakfast for me in the kitchen oven. On the kitchen table, I found this note Dear Helen, your cousin Betty is ill and needs me. I'm going to her by the 11 o'clock train. I'll be back in the evening. I've made a meat pie and a fruit tart. They are in the pantry. Explain to Hartley. I'm sure he will understand. And it will be all the lovelier, I think, for you two to have the time entirely to yourselves. Mrs Brown is coming in presently to be in the kitchen in case you want anything. The chicken for the salad is under the blue bowl. Devotedly, Mother. I read it over twice. Then I sat down with my knees weak, It was exactly as though some strong physical strain had given way. That is how relieved I was. At that moment, Mrs Brown, who helped with the work on special occasions, came up the path. There was but the one train back from Betty's, an evening train. It would get to our station just a few moments after Hartley's train had left. In a little while, my joy at Hartley's coming began to assert itself, like a stream that had been dammed up. I began to make the little house as lovely as I could, I gathered boughs of blossoms from the orchard and filled the little waiting house with them. At first, Hartley had eyes only for me. Then, at last, he looked about him. But, Helen, why didn't you tell me what a tiny love in a cottage sort of place you lived in? Why, it's beautiful. It's like something in a book. Look at these ceilings. He put his hand up and touched the old oak beams. I can touch them and the little window with the diamond panes, and out there, the orchard. Yes, isn't the orchard beautiful? I said, vague and pleased. Let us have supper, then we can go out there for the rest of the time. There will be moonlight. But that would be dangerous, for with you and apple blossoms and moonlight, I shall forget every duty in the world, he laughed. And I would surely miss my train, and I must not, I really must not. No, you won't miss it, I said. There is a down express which tears past at exactly a quarter to nine and it whistles as it goes. When we hear that whistle, we will know it is time for you to leave. And where is your mother? I could feel the blood mount into my face. Oh, Hartley, I'm so sorry. It's too bad. But a cousin is very, very ill. I don't know, I'm sure, where I got this double adverb. And mother has to be with her. Well, dear, and he kissed me, I'd love to meet your mother, but I cannot be as sorry as I ought to be for any absence of anybody that leaves me another precious minute with you. Richard came home to supper, gruff and awkward and terribly crude to my eyes, but I could tell by Hartley's look of happy interest in him, a genius to Hartley. He hurried away immediately after supper to return to his night work on the bulletin, and Hartley and I went into the orchard. Love is so blessed a thing that it makes a glory of its own. I could forget everything now but that Hartley was near me and that we were together in that beautiful moonlit garden. We'd been there perhaps an hour when I heard the gate click. I raised my head, startled. Could Mother be coming back after all? It was not Mother, however, but the straight, severe figure of Cousin Matilda that I recognised coming up the garden path. I felt a swift resentment She'd come out of curiosity just to see Hartley. I felt sure of it. I excused myself to Hartley. Don't be gone long, Hartley begged. Cousin Matilda turned as I entered and went and sat down by the sitting room table in a business-like manner. Where's Hartley? Down in the orchard, waiting for me, I said a little haughtily. Jimmy Parsons was driving over today, so I got him to let me come along with him. She unpinned the bow of her bonnet from under her chin, and flung it back as though that would give her better freedom to speak. I want to talk to you a moment about your mother. Is mother ill? I could feel my conscience fairly jump. No, she isn't. She went to Dalton by the eleven o'clock train. I know. I suppose you know why she went there? She went to be with Betty. She left a note. Betty needed her very much. Cousin Matilda put the lamp a little away from her, as though to gain time or control before she spoke. Your cousin Betty did nothing of the kind. She always needs someone, of course, but... But Mother said she left me a note. Never mind what your mother said. Now what I want to know is whether you know why your mother went out today. I shook my head. Well then, it is my duty to tell you. It isn't a pleasant duty, but it's got to be done. Well then, your mother went because she thought you would not want Hartley to see her. "'Cousin Matilda!' "'Now wait a moment.' "'Cousin Matilda put up a severe hand. "'Don't trick yourself or me or anyone else about this thing. "'You look it squarely in the eye as I'm looking at you. "'You are ashamed of your mother. "'You think she isn't stylish and altogether well-bred. "'What you call well-bred, I mean.' "'Mother is an angel,' said I hotly. "'Exactly.' but she doesn't wear fashionable clothes and her hands are red and she has worked hard and shows it. Helen, let me tell you, she spoke almost solemnly now in her own fashion, I haven't a right to keep this thing to myself. You remember when you thought you could not go back to school and then you went after all? It was not because finances went well again. They didn't. But your mother made up her mind you must not be disappointed. And she and Richard, well... Richard took on extra work at the bulletin, and your mother took sewing from a firm in town. They sent it to her each week. And she worked like a slave for you. Yes, they worked like slaves for you, both of them. They denied themselves everything. And cheerfully, happily, I tell you. And now... She turned her head away a little and blinked her eyes, with a kind of simmering indignation she could not otherwise express. She got up. I'm going now. I just wanted you to know. "'Oh, Cousin Matilda, don't. "'Why didn't you tell me?' "'I said miserably, yet almost fiercely. "'She cast another indignant look "'and repinned her bonnet strings. "'So you have to be told that your mother is an angel. "'You can't see it in every line of her face, in her bent shoulders, her... "'She turned away again, speechless. "'It isn't fair,' I spluttered, "'to blame me like that. "'Nobody tells me. "'You all keep things from me as though I were a baby.' and I'm not an angel. I'm a selfish pig. I'm a mean minx. I haven't got a soul the size of a peapod. I'm not fit to lace mother's shoestrings. I'm not. I'm not. Indeed, I was near to tears, and they swam into my eyes suddenly now. Cousin Matilda had armed herself to meet my pride, not my humility. It was the unlooked-for admission, I suppose, that I was human and faulty that unmanned her. She softened suddenly, Her indignation broke like an angry cloud that breaks into beneficent rain. There, there. I'm a cross, contemptible old woman, she said, and her own eyes filled. Besides, good gracious, what would your mother say? I've tried my best to help her all that she would let me help her. She looked perfectly dismayed and wretched. I've been a right hand to her all that I could, and look at me now. I've been tattling about what her left hand has been doing. She turned to me sharply. "'Helen, you must never let her know "'that I spoke to you like this.' "'No, indeed I won't,' I said miserably. "'But, Cousin Matilda, what can I do? "'Tell me, what can I do? "'It seems so dreadful. "'Oh, you can love her, love her, "'make her feel that you love and honour her "'more than if she were an empress. "'I don't know how, but do it, do it. "'Now go back to Hartley.' "'Oh, Cousin Matilda,' I said, "'I'm so dreadful, and you are so noble. "'Don't go away. "'Come down in the orchard and meet Hartley.' "'Her back stiffened even more. "'She put one hand on her bonnet strings nervously "'and was all a flutter, a true woman in a moment. "'Indeed, I will do nothing of the kind. "'With these old clothes, with this bonnet. "'Look at my gloves. "'I should think I wouldn't.' "'I went to the gate with her and kissed her goodbye.' Then I hurried down to the orchard. Hartley came towards me in the moonlight and held out his arms. I shrank back. ''Don't touch me,'' I said. ''I'm not going to marry you.'' Hartley was as entirely surprised by my announcement as he should have been, I suppose. I not only told him I could not marry him, but I poured it all out hotly that I was not fit to marry anyone, not anyone at all, not the most ignorant of labourers. Hartley was too well-bred, "'too well trained ever to get excited about anything. "'But his face got haggard all in a moment "'and his voice had a sharp, strange ring "'when he took my two hands and said, "'Now you tell me just what you mean.' "'I made him release my hands, "'then I sat at the far end of the bench, "'well away from him, "'and with my hands tense in my lap, I told him. "'I hurried through the story passionately. "'I called myself mean, selfish, and ingrate and small-souled. "'Mother had done everything for me.' Loved me, lived for me, sacrificed herself for me, worked herself tired here in the village, while I wore stylish clothes and red browning. She'd given me my schooling, my pleasures, my happiness. She'd given me that third year of school, and that year had given me him. Mother had done it all, every bit of it, and I'd been ashamed of her, ashamed of her. I'd not even been fine enough to admit it to him or myself. I'd been covertly, secretly, deceivingly, Ashamed of her. He interrupted me. But I've always somehow had the idea from you that she was beautiful. She is beautiful in her way, but it isn't your way or the world's way. She is beautiful, but she's got a tired face and she stoops and she hasn't one particle of style. Her hands are rough and red. She wouldn't know which fork to pick up first at your mother's luncheon table. There sounded the long shrill whistle of the train. Hartley got up. That is the express. You should have told me all this before. It would have obviated so much suffering. I've got to get that train. I had been chilly before, now I shivered. If I hadn't had them clenched, my teeth would have chattered. The thing was happening with awful sincerity now, and just as I deserved to have it happen. I've got to get that train, Hartley repeated that he put his hand to his forehead, a little gesture that I knew and loved. "'But I can't. I simply can't. Let me see. I will telegraph Timberlake. Timberlake can see Tilton, and can drive over and get him to stop work on the mills.' It sounded to me like jargon. "'Why don't you go?' I said. He looked at me puzzled. "'Why I can't. I've got to stay. You can't do it so well alone. We've got to make her understand, both of us somehow.' "'I don't know how, but we'll manage it. "'We've got to make her see. "'Oh, it must be fearful to spend your life loving children and then...' "'He checked himself and looked to me to forgive him "'for what seemed like criticism of me. "'Oh, Helen!' "'Then the world changed again all in a minute. "'He held out his arms and I slipped into them, utterly unhappy and happy, utterly inconsistent and sobbing. My poor little blossoming bough, he said, soothing my hair. Oh, but it's so fearful, I sobbed. I think you ought to despise me. Just think of mother. Mothers are different, he said, holding me close. They understand as we do not. I wonder if the rugged trunks of these trees that have stood the winter storms would mind such a great deal after all, if these blossoming boughs so exquisite in the moonlight "'should forget for a while where they got their beauty. "'Oh, don't,' I said miserably. "'I ought not to be consoled.' "'Just then the front gate clicked. "'Mother was home again. "'I shall never forget that moment while we stood Hartley and I "'and watched her go up the path to the house. "'The worn and drooping figure going slowly and a little thoughtfully "'and all unconscious that we watched her.' The tears were slipping down hotly now over my cheeks, and my whole heart seemed just one cry of, Mother, oh, Mother. The figure disappeared into the house. Come, dear, said Hartley. Let's go to her. We went up the little garden path. Near the house, we paused to look at her. We could see her through the lighted window moving about the kitchen, setting things to rights. She paused and raised her head, listening. She thinks I have gone with you to the train, I whispered. She's waiting for me to come back, he nodded. I know. She only thinks of Richard and me all the time. I know. Well, now she's got to have me to think of too. He said this with a little attempt at lightness. Still she waited, with her head lifted, listening. It seemed too poignant, unfair somehow... To look a moment longer at the dear, tired face, it seemed to me I can't begin to tell you how beautiful, and like an echo of my own thought came Hartley's. Dear, isn't she beautiful? Yes, yes. But we must not let her look tired any more. Oh no, I almost sobbed. Not ever, ever any more. We had hardly reached the door before she was there. Helen, is that you? Yes, mother. Has Hartley gone? "'No, indeed, I haven't. I'm here too,' said Hartley, stepping into the light. "'Of course, if you would run away, I had to stay longer.' Mother gave him her hand in a little puzzled, half-anxious way, with a little deprecating look from him to me, as though to ask who had arranged this, as though to say, "'It's not my fault, for this was the very thing she had tried to avoid.' "'Why, I'm glad to see you,' she said simply." but I thought you absolutely had to get that train. Helen said so. I did have to, said Hartley, but I more absolutely had to stay to see you. Why, you see, you are going to give me Helen, and I had to stay and thank you and tell you how beautiful I think she is and how wonderful it seems and how I just thank you with my whole heart for being her mother. Helen has told me about you and about all your goodness and to thank you for letting me be your son. Mother was a little bewildered by it all, like a little brown bird brought suddenly into the streaming light of a lamp. And I'm going to be the right kind of a son too, he said, still lightly, but nevertheless with a kind of soberness too. The very best I know how, at least. And I'd like to be worthy, if I can, of both of you. I never explained to Mother, of course, and I know, oh so thankfully, that she never guessed... I am quite sure that when she recalls that day she slipped away to take care of Cousin Betty who did not need her, it is with blame for herself only. How foolish and unkind of me, I am sure her thought runs. To have thought they didn't want me, for they do want me, I ought to have known better. And it is best it should be so. And now I don't know, I am sure, which takes the greater pride in the other. Mother or Hartley, or, for that matter, Cousin Matilda in them both, all of which is, as you can see plainly, twenty times more blessing than I deserve. For my cheeks still get hot with shame when I remember that once upon a time I was ashamed of my mother. The end. I do hope you enjoyed this humbling, yet engaging, getting of wisdom story. Please subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends and family. I hope you enjoy a lovely week and I look forward to being with you next week when I again share stories from before.